0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Reveal stories with purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. It's so good. Uh, to be with you. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord Uh, today. I'm pretty excited uh, this morning. Um, I was so excited and I'm bursting with so much joy that my button came off my suit. I'll have to fix that later. Uh, But there's a lot of things to be excited about. God is moving in mighty ways. Uh, I do want to just add my welcome uh, to that of Pastor EJ's to not only those that are here in person, but all of our friends that are watching us via live streaming from your home or with watch groups, we just want you to know that we love you as well, and you are welcome also. It has been awesome to know the reach of this ministry, uh, reaching those who are part of our church family. And now, in many ways, God has allowed us through this uh, pandemic to be able to reach beyond what we ever could have hoped, dreamed, or imagined. And how many praise God for the thousands upon thousands that are being reached every uh, week through our digital ministry. How many praise God for that? Uh, please pray. For that now, I recognize not everybody's tech savvy, and you may know someone who uh, yet is yet to feel comfortable with coming here physically, uh, but would love to worship with us and celebrate with us, and they're just not into that whole Facebook thing or into uh, technology. Well, I'm excited that starting next week we're going to begin to offer Woodside on the radio. How many think that's a good thing? Uh, and it's going to be. Uh, for uh, those who uh, may not feel comfortable with all the technology, tell them that uh, we're going to be broadcasting our 8 a.m. service from 8 to 9 a.m. on WMUZ's AM station, 1200 a.m. From 8 to 9 a.m., good, you could clap for that. That's a good thing. Uh, That's going to be on 1200 a.m. Please uh, encourage uh, your friends, your family members that may want to take advantage of that, that they can do that as well. Also, I am so fired up for the kids that are here. Uh, we have uh, sheets for you to follow along with us, these kid-friendly sheets. Uh, you can color in as well. as crayons. Adults, please don't take all the crayons from the kids. Uh, but if you are following along on this sheet for the kids, uh, you'll know that we're in a series called Reveal Stories with Purpose. And the title of this message, first blank you should fill in is the parable of the great reversal. Today I want to talk to you about the parable of the great reversal. I want to talk to you about the importance and power of belief, in particular when belief is placed in the right thing, when our faith and our trust is placed in God, in uh, contrast to placing our trust in earthly things like money and possessions and success. Now, this story that we're going to look at that Jesus told can be uh, classified as by many different names. We've called it the story of the great reversal because arguably it's the greatest underdog story ever told. How many love a great underdog story? How many love a great underdog story? Now, you know what an underdog story is. It's when uh, somebody is outmatched, outnumbered, seemingly outclassed, and they're going up against somebody who is bigger or better or smarter, but somehow against all The underdog wins and ends up on top. And you know what? There's a lot of those throughout history. I wonder what your favorite underdog story is. Now, if you're into sports and you know a little bit about American history, in particular Olympic history, no doubt your mind may go to the Miracle on Ice. How many remember that? The Miracle on Ice. 1980, the U.S. men's Olympic hockey team comprised of a whole lot of amateurs, young guys, 19, 20, 21. They're going up against a juggernaut of the USSR the Russian Olympic men's hockey team that was the dominant international hockey team at the time. It seemed like there was no way that they were going to be able to win. But miracle of miracles, they pull it off, and maybe the greatest sports moment, underdog uh, moment, is told. Some of you follow politics, and uh, you know that there are times when a candidate seems to come out of seemingly nowhere to surprise everybody, kind of shock the world, and end End up in office. Some have argued that our current president represents that underdog uh, story where uh, a political outsider comes in and no one expected when he announced that he was going to uh, run because he was an outsider that uh, he, would, he would win, but he did. And then others looked at Hollywood, and Hollywood is great for telling these underdog uh, stories. I don't know about your movie selection favorites, but one of mine is, is Trading Places. Anybody ever heard of Trading Places? You yeah, have a little bit older to remember Trading Places. One of Eddie Murphy's films, uh, uh, my wife said you may not want to recommend it to watch, but it was... <laughs> (laughs) pretty funny, especially if you're a stockbroker. Eddie Murphy and uh, Dan Aykroyd are in this movie and it chronicles the story It's kind of social experiment of a uh, commodities trader in Philadelphia that Dan Aykroyd plays and this homeless man that Eddie Murphy plays and the owners of this commodity firm, Duke and Duke, uh, Mortimer and Randolph Duke, they do this social experiment. What if we took a homeless man and made him uh, a commodities trader and what if we stripped this commodities trader of all of his rights, privileges, and, and benefits, what would happen to them? I don't have time to go into that. I would end up preaching about the movie instead of the text. But you can uh, check it out yourself. But it's an interesting reversal of fortunes. Well, today we're going to see a similar story, but we're going to hear this story from the lips of the greatest storyteller in human history, Jesus. Jesus was masterful, but he's getting at something not earthly, my friends, but something uh, spiritual. Maybe the greatest underdog story will be told in eternity. When we come to heaven, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, I guarantee you we will be surprised at who's there and who's not there. When we look at damnation, eternity, and hell, I guarantee you there are going to be some people that we thought for sure would miss it, but ended up there. Look with me at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 in your Bible, and what we're going to discover today is that real faith obeys God's Word. Real faith obeys God's Word. That is the thrust of the message today. You may want to fill that in if you're following in your notes on our uh, color-in pages. You may want to fill that in. Real faith obeys God's Word. If you're looking for a way to measure whether or not you really have faith in God, I can't think of a better measuring stick than obedience to His Word. Praise God for church attendance that has its place. Praise God for generosity that has its place. The occasional missions trip is nice, but all of that amounts to nothing if we don't have a fidelity, a commitment to obeying God's word, not just the easy parts, but all of it. How many have pledged their allegiance to obeying God's word in total? How many have done that? Praise God. Well, Jesus is going to challenge us all. Now, the focus of chapter 16 is on the relationship we have between God and money. And to understand chapter 16, I think the door hinge uh, turns of this chapter, turns in verses 13 and 14. This is what holds the chapter together. Verse 13 tells us the subject matter. Verse 14 tells us the audience. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus doesn't mince words. He calls it like it is, and he calls out one of the great idols of their day, which is also one of the great idols of our day. How many, by the show of hands, can be honest and say that you like or love success? How many like or love success? You know the opposite of that, don't you? Amen. Let's be honest, success seems to be so alluring, it seems to promise us that if we achieve enough that we can become uh, insulated from the pains of this life. This is the temptation of not just success, but what comes along often with success is money and possessions. Now, everything that Jesus is about to teach these Pharisees is not so much a condemnation against wealth in and of itself, but Jesus is condemned. When possessions possess us, he is saying it is clear that either you're going to exalt God to the throne of your heart, or success and ambition and money will become the God of your heart. And he gives us a perfect story to illustrate the outcomes of both pathways. Look at who the, his audience is. Verse number 14 The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of the day. They made the law seemingly. They were the best keepers of the laws. They were the ones that you knew had a golden ticket to go to heaven. And here's what Jesus is calling out is that all of your religion is fake and it is phony. Really, it's a veneer for what's really in your heart. And what he says was really in their heart was that they were lovers of money who self-justified their own success. In other words, they were the first purveyors of the prosperity gospel. This is what they believed, that success meant blessing by God, that if you had enough financial success, enough success and acclaim claim among your peers, that that means that God must be on your side. And if you didn't have that, that meant that you must be on the outs with God, that God's favor was not on your life. Jesus, like he always does, is about to flip that on his head. So now that we know the subject and we know the audience, let's look at the story. And there's two great principles that's going to come out of this story and one great question, the story of the great reversal. The first great observation here is that our final destiny is a result of our belief. What you believe will determine where you end up. What you believe will determine where you end up. Listen to these words, my friend. Verse number 19, there was a rich man And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, "Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, "Child, remember that you in your lifetime, you in your lifetime, you in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be be uh, able, and none may cross from there to us. Look at this. There are far too many details in here that Jesus just nuances and tucks into this story for me to be able to pull out. It would take me at least an hour and a half, and the staff had a vote this week, and they did not give me any extra preaching time. Imagine that. So I'll just have to pick out a few observational points. Verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20 tell us three things about this rich man. Did you notice those three things? The first thing it tells us is what he wore. This man wore fine linen. He was dressed in purple. He wore the finest clothes of his day. How many love nice clothes? Well, if you like nice clothes, and I got two amens for that, more than uh, uh, probably more of you should have said amen. If you like nice clothes, this man liked them more. He loved nice clothes. He didn't dress nice for major events or celebrations or weddings. He dressed to the nines each and every day. His appearance was of ultimate importance to him. He didn't just want to be successful. He wanted to look successful. But not only did he wear fine clothes, look at what he ate. He ate sumptuously. As a matter of fact, the word that's used there is he feasted sumptuously. That word feast there in the Greek would be our modern uh, word for gourmet. He ate gourmet food each and every day. He had his full of the finest of foods. He ate enough for himself, had enough for family and friends, and whatever he didn't want, he could just easily discard without fear of what he would eat the next day. And where did he live? Well, he lived in a gated estate. He lived in in an estate that had these, these beautiful big gates, and they weren't just there for security purposes, but they were there to announce and pronounce to the world how wealthy and successful he was. This is the profile of the man that we are examining today. And again, let me just caution you, Jesus' story is not told to condemn wealth in and of itself, but it is to condemn the attitude that accompanied this wealthy man. But let's not forget the original audience. Verse 14 tells us it was these Pharisees who were lovers of money in their own heart. Jesus is exposing their hearts to them. That's what each one of these parables do. They expose our hearts to us so that we find ourselves convicted every time I read the word of God. I walk away saying, Lord, I don't want this to be me." As the story begins, what would the Pharisees have heard? They would have heard, there's a successful guy. They would have identified with him. They would have thought that the end of the story would have ended well for him. And then the second figure enters into the story, Lazarus. Lazarus is the opposite of him. What does Lazarus wear? Not purple, not fine clothes. He is clothed in sores, open sores. Because of sickness and disease, he would have uh, been an outcast. His garment was his sickness and disease, and these sores were licked by dogs. What did he eat? No, he wasn't feasting sumptuously, but what he said is, I desire just simply the the food that falls from the table of the rich man. Now, during this time, even if you were in opulence, you did not eat with utensils. This was pre utensil time. And so what people would do is simply eat with their hands. They would rip off a piece of meat and, and maybe dip it into some, some sauce and eat it, or, or rip off a piece of bread and dip it into olive oil and eat it. And so you can imagine what would happen to your hands. And so part of what they would use as napkins were the broken pieces of bread to kind kind of dry their hands, and then to toss it on the ground next to them. This is what this Lazarus, this poor man, was craving. Can I at least have that? And where did Lazarus live? He didn't live in the gated estate in the finest rooms. No, he was dumped out at the front of the gate, which was strategic for a beggar, but it was not the place that any of us would want to dwell. And again, go back to the original audience. How would they have heard this? They would have heard, here goes a poor man that clearly upset God, clearly was outside of God's favor. And what would they have assumed his outcome would have been based off of his lack of earthly success, lack of earthly accolades. They would have assumed the story would end poorly for him. But in comes the great equalizer, and that is death. Death is a great equalizer. I don't care what you amass in this life, how much money, success, possessions, friends, accolades you amass, or the lack thereof, what is common for all men, rich and poor, is that all of us will die and have to stand before our maker. And what happens at death shocks us. What happens at death is that this rich man who seemed to have it all now has nothing. This this rich man who seemed to have everything that you would want. He in this life feasted sumptuously. Now he is begging Father Abraham, please just have Lazarus dip the end of his finger, not even the whole thing, just the tip of his finger, and touch my tongue because I'm in torture. I'm in torment. When he was alive, it seemed like he had everything. Did you notice that when they died, there's no mention of Lazarus being buried, only dying? Because during that time, the poor were not given burials or any type of ceremony. They were simply thrown into a common grave, bodies burned. But look at the great reversal, because in life, this man died and was buried He had a celebration. Friends came around and talked about all of his great success. But in the afterlife, he had nothing but torture and torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, who uh, didn't have much in this world, but was rich in faith, he ends up in comfort Now he's surrounded by dignitaries like Abraham. Now he is the one who is in the lap of luxury, not on earth, but what heaven has to offer. Now he is the one who is blessed. And what determined their destiny, it was their faith in life. It was their faith in life. Notice what Abraham says to him. He says, son, in your lifetime, in your lifetime, you had the ability to determine where you would end for eternity, and you chose to focus in on temporal things. You chose to allow your possessions to possess you. You made the opinions of people more important than the opinions of God. One of the great temptations of life is to live for the masses. But we, my friends, don't have to live for the masses. We are called to live for an audience of one, because when you stand before God, your eternal destiny will not be the matter of democratic process. There will be one who will look at you, and he will either say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me. I never knew you in your life. Lazarus may not have had a lot of money. He may not have had a lot of food or fine clothes, but he had faith in God. And that faith in God gave him something greater. And I want you to see the sting of the story. I want you to see the greatest difference between these two. The one thing that Lazarus had that this rich man did not have, the most profound thing missing from this rich man's resume is that he didn't even have a name. He's nameless, he's utterly nameless. All of his possessions, all of his riches, all of his fine foods could not even give him a name. Now, what is consistent about parables, because these are stories that Jesus creates, is that most characters uh, don't have any name. As a matter of fact, this is the only story where Jesus gives one of the characters a specific name. And I think it's intentional. I think he wants the world to know that the greatest possession of all is having your name known by God written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My friends, if I offer you money or a name, which do you choose? If I offer you a claim here or a name with God, which is more important to you? I pray that you would exchange all the wealth of the world to be known by the God who loves you, created you, sent his son to die for you. You and I can have a name with God. And while men and women in our day and age Are clamoring to be heard on earth. The beauty of the gospel is that because of Jesus, we can be heard on high. While men and women are clamoring to have a name on earth, the beauty of the gospel is we can have a name with God. And how many praise God for that? How many praise God for that? I love babies. I love babies, and I love moms and dads. How many thank God for moms and dads who have a tough job of praying, taking care of of kids? And I pray that we will always uh, make um, space and welcoming for our children. Amen? And I've never seen a baby who's crying who was not comforted by a popsicle afterwards, so please know that relief is on its way. Lazarus had a name. Lazarus had a name. And you and I can have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but it comes through faith in in God. But let me just tell you what faith is not because there is a misnomer here. There's a misnomer here. We live in a day and age where theology is king, and I think theology is, is important. I've dedicated my life to studying God's Word and the beliefs of Scripture. But let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not some detached, cold uh, uh, affirmation intellectually of doctrine and theology. If that's all we have, then we have nothing. James gets it right when he says, faith without works is... Faith without works, say it louder, is is dead. If you want to evidence your faith, it is through the way that you live, my friends. We do not do good works to earn our way into heaven, but because we have been redeemed, because we do know him, our life is different. Our choices are different. We don't make choices just based off of what will get us more money or more success or more acclaim. We make uh, choices based off of what will advance the name and the fame of Jesus. And so may all of who I am be vested in all of who He is. And so, if this first premise is right, you should be asking yourself if my belief determines my destiny. That I want to believe the right way. I want to make sure that I have the right belief. How many want to get this right? Because I'm telling you right now, uh, the time to determine this is now. Not when you die. When you die, there's no more negotiating. When you die, there's no more bargaining. Is the point of man wants to die and then the judgment. You have to choose God now and put your faith in Christ now. Amen? And so the question becomes, how do I believe the right way? And the answer is this, is that revelation has been given to direct us. Revelation has been given to direct us. Look at verses 27 through 29. And he said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him, again referring to Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. I'm just amazed at the attitude of this rich man. He, He has it bad. Even in death, even in torment, he's still bossing Lazarus around. He's still acting like Lazarus works for him. Hey, newsflash, buddy. Lazarus is not your employee. And he, he doesn't even humanize Lazarus by talking directly to him. He talks to Abraham. Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger. No, it's not gonna happen. There's a chasm between you and I can't have. Okay, fine. Send Lazarus, Abraham, then to my father's house to warn my brothers. Send him to warn my brothers. Abraham's response to him is they have all that they need. Well, what do they have? They have Moses and the prophets. My friends, this is Abraham's way of saying that they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament scriptures, which can be at times referred to in scripture as Moses and the prophets. Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch, and then the prophets is a summary term to summarize the rest, the Torah in whole. They had the scriptures, and the gospel can be found. Yes, even in the Old Testament, they had everything they needed to know about God. How many know that this book is sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about God? How many know that this book is sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about faith? How many know that this book is inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, reliable, that you can build your life on the faithfulness of this book? How many praise God that he has left for us his word to give us the His word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Praise God for his word. So no, Abraham says to the rich man, no, they don't need Lazarus. They need to pay attention to Moses and the prophets. What about us? What about us? What do we have? We have not only what they had, but we also have the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the evangelists. We have the gospels. We have the epistles. We have the apocalyptic literature. We know what's going to happen both now and into the end. We are without excuse. Let me just say this. I love preachers. I got an affinity for them. I I got a sympathetic heart for pastors. I got a a tender place in my soul for those who are called to proclaim God's word. How many appreciate a pastor or two? How many thank God? Praise God. I was going to be pretty sad if I didn't get a response on that one. Right? But here's the thing, and I pray that as long as you are alive, that God will bless you with phenomenal pastors who will faithfully preach God's Word. But let me just say this, that even if you don't have the ability to get to a pastor or no pastor can get to you, you still have been given everything that you need in the Word of God. You open up that Word and you begin to read and you will find God's truth jumping out of every verse to minister to your heart. David put it this way, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every problem you will face in life, the answer is in this word. The greatest book of wisdom is right here in front of us. Guidance. I love this, that the Bible can be used as an acronym, basic instructions uh, for life. And I think this is true, that everything we need is in God's word. The greatest wisdom is found right here. All revelation has been given to us for proper belief. But the rich man goes on and he continues to debate with Abraham. And these two premises lead to one big question, what will we do with what God has revealed. Look at verses 30 and 31. And he said, no, Father Abraham. Isn't it cute how he keeps arguing with Abraham? Let me just tell you, he's not going to win the argument. And neither will we. He says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Listen to the premise of his heart. Imagine if there was someone who was dead and then rose again. That would be a game changer, wouldn't it? Imagine. I know this may sound crazy, but imagine if there was somebody who was dead, buried in the grave, and on the third day rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Surely that would be enough of a game changer to uh, soften even the hardest of hearts, right? You would think so. You would think that if 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 this rich man's brothers would have seen somebody raised from the dead, that that would have been enough of a game changer. But Abraham wasn't so foolish. He quickly responds to this man, and he says in verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. I don't care what miracle you give. I don't care what testimony you give. If people cannot hear the voice of God through Scripture, they won't hear or believe the testimony even of a resurrected Savior. And so our prayer needs to be, Lord, Lord, Open my eyes that I might see you in your word. Help me to love your word more. Help this word to become such a final authority in my life that it governs the way that I live and the way that I behave. My friends, there's a lot to lament in this season. When you look around our culture, there is sufficient brokenness to lament about a whole series of things. But maybe the thing that is most heavy on my heart is the way that we have begun to treat one another. We have entered into a season where uh, we look at those who believe differently than us or have a different perspective than us on a, a myriad of things, no matter how trivial, as somehow being the worst of all people. We have entered into a season where there is the assumption of the worst, that if somebody has a different perspective than me, that that must mean they're being influenced by nefarious forces and they are evil. And the fact that we deem them evil isn't so much the problem as much as how we treat them, treating, treating others as subhuman. But it was our Lord who on the cross prayed this radical prayer for those who had crucified him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And no doubt if uh, we would have heard that. In our Twitter and Facebook and social media age, we would have called Jesus foolish. Of course, they know what they do. It's an agenda, it's a plot to somehow destroy us. It wasn't that Jesus was somehow blind or naive or foolish, but he understood this that hate doesn't conquer hate, that it takes love to conquer hate. He understood that the power of the cross was greater than any other scheme or plot of man, and it governed his behavior and his actions even on the cross. What of us? Has the word become our final authority, so much so that it governs the way that even we treat one another? My friends, we can say all we want that we are Christians, but if we only are willing to do the parts of Scripture that we agree with, or find convenient, or easy to apply, then we are not Christians. It's more mere convenience. If you read this Bible... I warn you, you will encounter and stumble upon some passages where you will discover that his ways are not our ways. You're going to discover some parts of scripture that you wish were not there, this whole business of loving your enemies. How many ever wish they had some whiteout when they read the Bible, right? Forgiving those who mistreat you, but it's in there. And if we really love Jesus, we shouldn't look like the world. A church that looks like the world would never win the world. We have to look different. And maybe one of the greatest ways we can evidence our faith and our trust in Jesus in this hour is by how we love our enemies. The rich man never even saw Lazarus, never even acknowledged his humanity. May we be different. May we, like Jesus, be able to look even at the other And say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May they be recipients of the same mercy and grace that I have received. There is two challenges in this text. What will you do what He has revealed, what God has revealed? The first challenge is for those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Tomorrow is not promised to any man. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I can't even venture a guess of when He's going to come back to us, but today might be the day where you go to Him. And so don't waste another moment. Put your faith and trust in Jesus now and watch Him heal and restore and put together the broken pieces of your life. My friends, He does make all things new. He brings life and that more abundantly. Don't wait. Don't delay. Trust in God now. But the second challenge is for those of us who have put our trust and our faith in Him. Will we live for Him? Will we live out the imperatives of the word of God even when it challenges our flesh even when it's hard on our soul even when it's inconvenient will we live differently no longer prioritizing the gods of success and ambition and the approval of man and possessions and money and things but prioritizing an audience of one. How many want to live for the day where you will stand before him and hear well done my good and my faithful servant. And if we're going to live that way, we're going to have to love with an uncommon love. We're going to have to sacrifice with an uncommon sacrifice because that's what he did for us. We serve a Christ who laid down his life for us to live. And if he did that, what sacrifice can he ask of us that is too much for us? And so today we will end in praise, but I challenge you to put your faith in him, and if you have, to live for him, to honor him, and to love like him, to make God the one who sits on the throne of your heart. Amen? Let's stand. Father, today we proclaim that there is no other name. Thank you. Jesus, for making a way for those of us that are so far from you to know the miracle of salvation. You are our way maker. You are our miracle worker. Lord, you translate us out of darkness into the kingdom of the son that you love. And so, Mm -hmm. Lord, I pray that today by your grace, you would save Mm -hmm. and you would transform our hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.